ribbons, they overflow Been rejected by the bin man My hoarding's out of control Don't want to bring back any one night stands You're scared to talk about it Don't want to make a scene Can't get that loft extension So I live in a land full of memories Hiya! I'm Susanna Amato, but you can call me Susie. And this is the Landfill of Memories podcast. My stage show, Landfill of Memories, came about because I had a breakdown. And through that breakdown, I discovered that I was a hoarder. And in this podcast, we look back at all the things that we keep for the memories. We've all heard that one before, right? Keep it for the memes, put it on the Instagram. From sentimental objects to the most silly things, we relive each item story and hear about the part they've played in our lives. And as an owner of over 500 train tickets, a ridiculous amount of receipts and a phenomenal amount of photos, I finally come to recognise the power of letting things go. So in this podcast, I ask my guests to bring in three things that remind them of significant moments in their lives. An item that reminds them of a childhood memory, an item that reminds them of a tough time and an item that reminds them of such an amazing memory, they'll treasure it forever. And then, at the end of the conversation, we'll find out whether they'll keep the memory or decide to shred it into pieces. Keisha Thompson is a writer, performance artist and producer. At only 32 years old, Keisha was appointed Artistic Director and CEO of Contact in Manchester. She became the first Mancunian, the first woman and the youngest person to be in charge of the Oxford Road Arts Venue. Keisha won a Theatre Makers Award in 2021 and was a judge on Manchester Amplified, a scheme the makers of this podcast, Audio Always, launched, which supports arts and culture organisations in Greater Manchester. And she basically helped me get this podcast. Thanks, Keisha. And I really hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I did. Keisha Thompson, welcome to Landfill of Memories. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. It's sunny outside and I'm going to take myself off to London after this. To do what? Actually, leisure. Leisure? Yeah, we're both surprised, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't usually happen. But it's my friend's um, birthday this weekend, so we're going to cross the tracks. So I've got a fun little festival dress in there, some biodegradable glitter. I'm just going to fancy myself up and have a bit of fun. That sounds incredible. And still very jealous. (laughs) (laughs) What's it going to be like in London? What's the weather going to be like? Hot. Yeah. Is it? I checked. I checked. Because I was like, oh, should I bring me Dr. Martin's? But looked and it's all right. So I'm wearing my trainers. Um, although this is the mathematician in me, I know that after like two or three days, the weather forecast is pretty unreliable. Oh, is it? But you know, I'm gonna I'm going there with hope. Can I go to London, please? <laughs> <laughs> Give me to this podcast in London. Well, I'm really glad that you're here, and thank you so much for this opportunity because you're on the panel for Manchester Amplified. Yeah, I'm really just happy that I've had this opportunity to build this podcast. So I can see you've brought a decrepit brown envelope with you (laughs) with some wonderful and amazing memories in them. So shall we get on with it? Yeah. Let's go. So as you know, I'm a hoarder. 
and I find it really difficult to part with my possessions. Is there anything in your home that's kind of gathering dust? Do you have a shit drawer? If so, what's in it? Yeah, I hoard quite a lot. So both my parents are hoarders, so I feel I've got empathy. Um, But I'm a neat hoarder. Mm -hmm. So when I was, like, finding my items for this show, actually... I was doing it with my boyfriend and he was like, you've not got stuff. I was like, I've got stuff. It's just neatly tucked away. So then I opened this wardrobe and all these different boxes and he was like, oh my God. (laughs) So have you hidden your hoarding from your partner? Not hidden. I just think, well, hide it from myself because I like to have a nice tidy environment, but I'm very tactile. I'm very much an analogue person. Mm. So I keep hold of things, but I just file them away. Mm. And then from when I was younger, actually, I do this kind of cathartic process every now and again, where I'd go through all my boxes and look at everything and be like, okay, what things can you get rid of? Mm. What things like you don't need that? you'll remember it, it's fine. Like, yeah, and just really having a process and just cleansing and just getting rid of stuff. But I've just got, like, yeah, boxes and boxes of flyers and stuff because I perform a lot as well. There's always little mementos, wristbands, just stuff that you don't really want to... You just don't want to get rid of it. I feel like I'm looking into a mirror because this is who I am. This is exactly the kind of hoarder that I am. Shoe boxes full of stuff or big kind of old chip boxes from like a supermarket with mm-hmm. just like booklets and like tickets. Yeah. And do you collect kind of um, like flight tickets or anything like that? Yes. Train tickets? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> this is but again, rad. like, yeah, every now and again, I'm like, right, okay, get rid of it. It's fine. Yes. Um, but yeah, I don't like change. So I've got stuff that's super decrepit and I think that that's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stuff I'll pull it out and I'm like, I don't even know what this is anymore. <laughs> it's faded, but you know. <laughs> Must keep it though. Yeah. You never know when you're going to need that. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of something that's collecting dust, do you know what I've got? And it excites me because I'm like, it will come in handy at some point. So when lockdown happened at that time... I'm still subscribed to The Economist, but I was an imprint and digital subscriber. Mm -hmm. So I was getting weekly magazines. But just because of the chaos, because of what was happening in the world, I was like, I don't actually want to read it. So I just had a pile just mounting Mm. of all these magazines, documenting what happened over that time. But I've just not touched them. I've not opened them. And I've just left them there. And I feel like there's going to be a time when... I'll delve in there Mm. and it will just be like this archive of that strange, strange time. But yeah, so that's my, essentially my representation of that period (laughs) of our lives. So how many magazines is that? Oh, gosh. So one a week? Yeah. For two years? I'd say about a year. So there's like 52. 52. Yeah, it takes up like a whole... Because I moved them off the floor eventually when I started to go back to like normal life. Um, So I moved them onto my bookshelf, but they take up a whole like... What is that called, actually? A section? A shelf? A shelf? Yeah. (laughs) What do you call that bit on the floor that goes up? up, I could be anything. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you've not brought any with you, so we no. can't shred them. You could probably sell them, you know, in about 50 years. That's it. They're uh, going to be worth a lot, aren't they? They are. So there are perks, I guess, to being, <laughs> guess to being a hoarder <laughs> or being, like, not unsubscribing from that particular magazine. But with the items that we do have today, so this podcast is all about looking back through 
your memories um, because we often think about memories as milestone moments sometimes and you know thinking of going on a holiday you know shoving it on Instagram and then kind of going home but what are memories and how do we cultivate them mm. because we have loads of them especially as hoarders uh, but we don't talk about them enough and we don't relive them so what we're doing in this podcast is that we're just going to go back through those significant memories and basically decide if we're going to keep them mm. or shred them into pieces so for you Keisha Starting with your memorable item, something that reminds you of your childhood, what have you brought in with you today? And can you describe it for our lovely listeners as well? So I brought in a little postcard um, and it's got Spot the Dog on it. <laughs> I used to love Spot the Dog. Yeah. So it just reminds me of my childhood because I loved reading. Um, it was something that I was encouraged to do a lot. And I don't just mean like as a reader. It was something that I was encouraged to do in front of other people because mm. they knew that I was quite animated and I was quite good at articulating. So I would be like the narrator in assemblies. I'd always take that role. And that was quite affirming for me now that I think back. And yeah, I guess it also gives me that sense of um, reminding me that you'd get through all your spot the dog books and then you'd get to free choice. So there's that reward <laughs> of like, oh, I can pick whatever book I want now. Like I'm that level... Uh, so yeah, when I saw this, it just reminded me of all of that. And also it's bright green, the background, and my room was green when I was little. So it just reminds me of that kind of colourful, vibrant energy that you have when you're tiny and you just want a room that's just a ridiculous colour. Like, I wouldn't be able to handle that colour. Like now. green. It's a particularly prominent green, isn't it? It is. But it's not quite highlight. It's like dark green highlighter mm. a little bit. Yeah, but that's literally what my room was. Was it? Yeah. And oh. also the sun used to come in the window, so it was so bright. Mm. It was lovely, but I just know now that I couldn't, no. <laughs> As an adult. <laughs> and is there anything on the postcard itself? No, on the back or anything. Yeah. No, so this speaks to my... No, this isn't hoarding. I'm a collector. I collect postcards. So all hoarders is... are welcome here, by yes. the way. No it's judgment. No judgment at all. Thank you. So this has come from my collection. Yes, yeah, so I went through my postcards and this was one that I pinned. So I was like, oh, yeah, that reminds me of my childhood. So it's not got anything written on it because it's even still got a sticker on it from where I got it from because I don't do anything with them, my postcards. I just keep them very pristine in a box or I frame them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my friends will know they, I've got like three A2 size, like flip chart sized mm-hmm. frames in my house where I showcase like some of my favourite postcards. So how come this one isn't in a frame? Well, because I'm a hoarder, isn't it? So I've got loads. <laughs> I've got loads that like remind me of things, various things. And there's some that, like this one's more for me. Mm. Whereas there's some that it's more decorative or it's something that's like a memory that I know a friend who coming around would be like, oh, yeah, that. So do you know what I mean? So what's the criteria for it to be kind of levelled up, as it were, to frame status? It needs to have some kind of memory attached to it that feels more communal or like a great statement on it that kind of just wakes me up. So there's one that's like, get shit done or like use your imagination and I don't know what I'm doing and just stuff like that. So I read it and I'm like, yes, yes. True. Uh, yes, you're right. Why do you know so much about me? Yeah. And there's one, oh my God, it's so annoying. So 
it's just really playful, right? And I can't remember where I got it from, but it looks like a camel from afar. But as you get closer, it represents the Kama Sutra. And it's all these figures like intertwined, all these naked bodies just doing really naughty stuff. And I always forget about it. And my niece comes around and she's five. And out of all the postcards, out of all the postcards, that's the one that she always goes to. She points it. She's like, Antikisha, what are they doing? And I'm like, will you just get away from me? <laughs> like, just look at that. I'm like, look at this one. Look at that one. I'm like, why do you keep looking at that one? I'm like, my parents are going to kill me. <laughs> Bad auntie vibes. Bad auntie vibes. <laughs> So, um, with this particular postcard then, I'm going to ask you, I'm just going to ask you straight away, are you going to keep it or are you going to shred it? I feel like the mischief in me is like, just shred it, go on, just shred it. Because I've got so many, haven't I? You have, you clearly have loads. Yeah. And also like... this is me being such a hoarder right do you know what thought just went in my head then I was like I can just collect the shredded bits and make something because I used to like collaging when I was little so I was like it's not going to go to waste that wasn't a part of the brief like I can take the shredded elements and stick it back together and make something new you can't do that once it's shredded it's shredded okay okay it's fine I'll shred it you're going to shred it yes Okay. Okay, I'm with you all the way. Okay. I'm with you all the way. I'm right here. Okay. Right. She's lifting it up. She's placing it over the shredder. Wow. How do you feel? That was very quick. That was quick. Um, I feel like I'm going to, you know, know it's affected me already. Has it? <laughs> I was like, when I'm on the train, but no, no, I'm sad. What's going through your mind right now? I don't know. It was just so quick. (laughs) And now I'm like, why did I do that? For the mischief, for the curiosity. Mm. No, it's fine. No, this is good. good. Yeah, I think you're right to say you're curious to know what it feels like to put it through and go, actually, you're confronted with having to say goodbye to something. Yeah. And then there's also the part where I'm like, why am I sad? Did that just upset me? Yeah, it's an attachment, isn't it? Are you okay? Yes, I'm all right. I remember what colour my room was. (laughs) (laughs) You can always listen to this podcast back and remember that beautiful dark green highlighted postcard with Spot the Dog on and the sticker. I remember your room and that bright sunlight coming through. This is true. Do you need a minute? No, let's go. Really well done. From one hoarder to another. I know it's really hard. I've done it with all of my things. I've only got a couple of boxes left, so I'm slowly Mm. making my way through it too. Mm. Well done. Thank you. Let's move on to something. Let's move on to you and not your possessions for a moment. So you became, obviously the artistic director and the CEO of Contact Theatre at the age of 32? Yeah. What a monumental achievement. What what was that like? Very surreal. Um, yeah. I remember we announced it in March, but I didn't actually start until June. Mm. So that was strange. Because when we did the interview, I was explaining 
you know, the current role that I was in and the notice period. And also I'd agreed to do a residency in Singapore in May. So I was like, these are all the things I need to do before I then delve into this role because it would be so consuming. Mm. Um, So that was strange to kind of spend this like three month period in suspension where people Mm. thought I was in the role or in the building messaging me and being like can I get some space here can I do that I was like I don't work there yet (laughs) leave me alone (laughs) just for a minute just to gather my thoughts but yeah on the day it was really lovely the announcement and I really felt like the warmth Mm. from people which I'm so grateful for but it was actually super overwhelming as I'm sure you can understand so I just turned my phone off I just went round to my mum's and we just made food because uh She's from Guyana, so I wanted to just make a really traditional dish. Mm. So we made roti and curry, curry chicken. That was my day. Well, that sounds amazing. Happy <laughs> come round to your mum's house for dinner, <laughs> seeing as I'm only eating salads for breakfast. <laughs> but I remember when it was announced, yeah. I remember that moment and I was like, this is going to change the face of that venue oh. and everything around the contact theatre. It's just completely shaped itself into be this awesome powerhouse of like youth, youth arts and mm. LGBTQI plus venue. And you at like the figurehead of that, it, it was just amazing. I was like, now that's, you've changed that venue. Like, Thank- and what's it been like since it was announced? Yeah. The responses have been lovely. Um, so many people reached out to me, uh, ringing me, messaging me, saying what you've said, which... Again, it's really beautiful to hear that. I mean, there's pressure attached to that, but that's fine. I kind of knew that that would be involved. And it kind of spurs me on anyway to have that sense of duty. Mm -hmm. You know, I do take that very seriously. And I know that taking on this kind of role, being at the front of a cultural space, that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're lending yourself to your community to the artistic community to the art sector and you're trying to make change or make a statement or fit into the ecology in some way so I've gone in with a strong idea of what I want to do but also with a strong sense of wanting to be malleable about that wanting to be responsive wanting to listen wanting to be curious Mm. wanting to deliberately not know Mm. um Yes, yeah, so there have been times when people have been asking me, like, what do you envision for the next five years? And I'm like, well, that would be a bit presumptuous, wouldn't it? That would be a bit weird because who saw, like, COVID coming? Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? In the next five years, I, I hope that there isn't going to be another pandemic yeah. that's going to, you know, <laughs> devastate the art community. Because it has, yeah. I mean, what was it like during COVID having to support? Because I know that contact theatre and yourself were a part of the Greater Manchester Artists Hub Mm -hmm. as well which was so incredible for all the venues across Manchester to come together and support all different kinds of artists live artists, performers, actors um, designers visual Mm -hmm. artists um, poets, it was just amazing and to offer support and guidance, yeah what was that like as well? It felt great, again it was a very affirming time because it made me appreciate the city that I'm in and the sector mm. that I'm in. Mm. Um, I just thought the type of care that I'm seeing here and that I'm able to dispense as well mm. um, just made me feel very proud, a strong sense of purpose. And again, like I was saying, being in Manchester, because what I've come to appreciate is you go to other cities and they're not as joined up in that way. No, not But at all. it felt very natural for us all to just get together on a Zoom and go, right, what are we doing? How are we all going to support each other and support uh, the artists in this city? Because everyone needs it. 
yeah, it just didn't feel like a question. It was just like, right, this is what we all need to do. It was just philosophical. Like I remember speaking to a woman who was a visual artist and she had a studio in her home. But then, obviously, with everything that happened, she had to have her children in that space because she was homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just really threw her off. So she was like, am I an artist? I've not got space anymore. I'm not spending any of my time on my work. I'm just looking after my kids. Am I an artist? Mm. And it was very existential. And we were just like, yeah, you are, you are, don't worry. <laughs> it's OK. I think something that I went through during COVID was the kind of detaching, the feeling of detaching myself from my identity of, as being an artist and that's all I was. Mm. And actually it's like, no, I'm also all these other things too. Mm. I'm a friend, I'm, you know, a counsellor, I'm a Samaritan. I'm yeah. all of these other things as well as being an artist. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just the way that I coped. But I know that other people went the other way and were like, no, I'm even more of an artist mm. now. Like, this is definitely what I want to be yeah. and who I want to be. It's so nice to hear that the curiosity and not really knowing is is also a part of that journey. And it's OK to not really know where you're going as well yeah. or where the contact was going or kind of the vision, you know, all yeah. this kind of like these big questions around something so uncertain. Yeah. And that's very much the essence of my practice as an artist. I go into a process with a question mm. at the centre and I shouldn't know the answer. I don't want to know the answer. Uh, I want to be surprised. So I have the same approach here. And I think particularly with the type of theatre that we are, um, we support emerging artists, we support young people, we support people who are on the fringes and you can't always pin down what they're doing or what they think that they are, even mm. like in terms of labelling themselves as an artist. And that's exciting for us. It's a marketing problem, but <laughs> that's okay. I personally grew up in quite a deprived area um, mm. in Northampton and I'm a neurodivergent woman. Mm. And I've always found it really, really hard to, I mean, more recently, I feel like changes in the way that artists venues view artists now not just one type of person that can come into the venues like it's accessible not just putting a ramp in but also feeling like you can be a part of that space Mm -hmm. and I felt like there was a lot of challenges personally um, and definitely since Brexit because I'm North African descent my mum's North African my father's Italian they both came to this country in many moons ago and always saw myself as British and then when Brexit kind of came in there was something that shifted and kind of all the dialogue and the narratives around governments sending people from because I'm first generation British and if Mm -hmm. you're first generation British you were also just as you could be sent back to your country yeah there's a precariousness there isn't there it's like well if I'm being sent back to the Amalfi Coast where my dad was from I don't think that's going to be a bad thing but you know North Africa I've never been there like I've never been there with my mum but you know I think once Brexit happened and I felt like I was embracing my heritage I was like, oh, this space now feels very different for me. I mean, have you experienced any kind of barriers to entry, as it were, into the arts industry? So whenever I answer this question, I always find it interesting because I'm like, I'm clearly someone who's gotten through. So you'd have to ask the people who didn't Mm. (laughs) about the barriers that they faced. But I'm not in denial of them. Mm -hmm. And I'm very aware of the structural um, dynamics that mean that people with protected characteristics are obviously facing barriers on a day-to-day that stops them getting into a variety of industries, including the arts one. 
So, yes, I would say that I have witnessed and experienced, but I've managed, obviously, to navigate them. So then it feels like it's very much my duty now to highlight that, do what I can to open up spaces, look for opportunities. Yeah, and I do that in a range of ways. So, for example, at Contact, I developed the anti-racism training package that we've been delivering that's been going down really well. I've been doing a lot of training internally with staff. Because it's about, like you were saying, the environment. It's not just having a ramp on a building. It's the intangible, it's the culture, it's the microaggressions that means that when you go into a space, you're having to ask for things or feel othered or whatever, and that's exhausting. And also knowing that it doesn't just start with when a person comes into your building. It's how do they even get there? What's the communication? to allow them to feel comfortable or to feel welcome, to even consider that you should be on their radar. And that all takes a lot of work and it, you're not perfect with it, but that shouldn't be a reason to not endeavour because mm. so many people will kind of have this kind of defeatist attitude or get hooked on little things and that is not helpful. Mm. So you should just move forward and just try. Yes. And ask. Yes, so that's very much what I'm about. But yeah, so the stuff that we're doing that's very much like formal, like I was saying, training, but then also it does feed into my artistic practice. So I've had experiences where I've felt threatened or othered and whatever, and the way that I kind of rectify them is I use it as artistic fodder. So there's a piece that we're going to be presenting at Contact this autumn called 14% which is about a female footballer. She's the protagonist. She's trapped on a train with some football hooligans and she has just gotten the results from a DNA test. So she's got that similar experience of being first generation British, but her family are from elsewhere and she's trying to understand that. She's trying to quantify herself and understand her Britishness. And she was Mm -hmm. like, do I get it from a DNA test? Do I get it from being a footballer on the England team? Like, where do I get it and when when is it valid and when is it not Mm. so if I was on the pitch for these people they'd have me they'd accept me but now that I'm sat on a train do they accept me now Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing those Mm -hmm. kind of negotiations but I've made sure that even though it's a very weighty topic me approaching it is joyful Mm -hmm. so I've tried to make it super funny super accessible I've said that I want it to feel like a garage rave, a UK garage rave at some points and all this stuff. So I'm just like, we're going to have fun. Like, I don't want anyone coming in here and walking out and being like <laughs> battered. Like that happens on a day to day anyway. Exactly. So it's like, let's come in and talk about this horrible topic, but in a way that allows us to chew on it a little bit and have a bit of fun. Oh, that sounds amazing. I actually recently did a DNA test, mm. an ancestry DNA test. I'm 40% North African, nice. 30% Southern Italian, very specific to Campania, which where my dad grew up in, in the Amalfi Coast. And then I've got like Marlinese yeah. DNA and I'm like, what? That explains the big bottom. <laughs> that explains it all. Uh, Nilotic peoples, like yeah. so South Kenya, lots of yeah. like South Sudan, Kenya, mm-hmm. and then 1% Basque, <laughs> which my friend was like... <laughs> Basque country is like the Scottish of Spain. And I was like, I'm Scottish. And I remember when I received the DNA test, I wound down the window in London. I was outside Camden People's Theatre doing a show. And I just went, I'm Basque! <laughs> 1% Basque, but I'm Basque nonetheless. That sounds amazing. I will definitely come and watch that. Oh, please do. The exploration of self as well yes. and belonging. And yeah, I think I think that just sounds amazing. 
let's move on to yeah. your second item. So um, this is an item um, that I've asked you to bring in that reminds you of a tough time. So mm-hmm. what have you brought in today? So, yeah, I was rustling through and this actually surprised me because there was some stuff that I thought was obvious or I was like, oh, I'll grab that, whatever. And then this just kind of tumbled out. And it's a tenancy form that I had to fill out when... So I'm quite open about this. My second solo show was about my relationship with my dad. It's called Man on the Moon. And, you know, that's an ongoing story. So the piece in itself is about a certain snapshot in time, but, you know, there's still things going on. And this was a point when he was struggling with his housing association, reached out to me, and I was having to, like, fill out forms and try to advocate for him, but it was so red tapey. And it was just bizarre because, yeah, it was just a really difficult time where I was having to be his daughter when that's not really the role that I play often. And it's emotionally weighty, um, having to defend my dad, but then, you know, speaking to him on a level and he's not always appreciative of what I'm doing and like, or I'm not doing enough. Or So, yeah, it just kind of represents that kind of weird period where I was having to just be caught in the middle with this situation. And I'm the youngest of five on my mum's side, but I'm the oldest on his side. Mm. So it's a real flip that I have to play where I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm in charge, I'm the oldest, okay, Ooh. And it all feels like it's on top of me. How long ago was this? So this was, I think it was 2020, because it was just before lockdown, yeah. Because it was just before I went to Copenhagen. It's quite recent then. Yeah, it's before I went to Copenhagen for my friend's birthday, and that was in 2020. So, yeah, it was around that time. So what happened? What was the process of getting this piece of paper? Yeah, so that was the nonsense as well, because <laughs> they were essentially trying to remove my dad from his residency but they were sending the form for me to that residence. And I was like, well, I'm not going to get it. And You don't live there. Yeah, and I was like, he's not going to open it because he just doesn't open mail. And I was like, and also this feels really redundant because isn't this the residence that you're trying to get him out of? Yeah. So why are you sending it there? That's mad. <laughs> so they were sending you documentation to his address. Yeah. And it, it sounds as if the you and your dad's relationship is quite maybe perhaps distant. Or, yeah. So what was that like trying to navigate like, Dad, I need to get this post because you're about to get kicked yeah, out potentially. Exactly. And he doesn't like he doesn't have a phone. So he doesn't open his mail. He doesn't have a phone. Every now and again he checks his emails. House phone? No. No house phone? No. Okay. So I would have to physically go around there and I don't know when he's gonna be in. So it was very tiring because I was just having to go around there, check his mail, see if he'd received it, send an email, ring them. So it was just like a lot of going round and round. And I was like, can you just send it to my address, please? Yeah. Or send it to my work? Like, just send it somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it just speaks... You don't know who I am. I'm Keisha. I work at the contact. <laughs> that is the address. Send it to me. For God's sake. <laughs> But it's that nonsense, isn't it, when you speak to someone and you're like, can we just have a human conversation, please? You know, and they're like, this is what I need to do. This is what... And you're like, yeah, but from the basis of this conversation, that's not working. Like, in in normal circumstances, whatever those circumstances are, okay, it would make sense for you to send it in this way. Mm. But that's not working. 
So can we just do something else? I don't think you're going to get in trouble. I can't see how you're going to possibly get Change, in trouble. Change, innit? It's because people are so used to being in, doing their normal thing that they've been asked to do. And the idea of someone proposing, like you're problem solving, it's like, no, we can't do that. Yeah. Like, yes, you can. You just, you're just gutted you didn't come up with the idea. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think, I can't even remember what happened, you know. I can't even remember how I got it, but I got it. Mm. But the hilarious thing is that clearly I didn't send it because now I've still got it. So it must have, by the time I got it, it must have been redundant. Didn't even need it. We figured something else out. And so you, your dad has found somewhere else to live? Or he's yeah, still, he's still, still there. there. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So it was fine. Yeah. It was all good in the end, although you still have a memory, a physical memory of it. Yeah. So you, did you actively keep it or was it just shoved in a box? I think. I keep hold of stuff like this just in case it's important. But it did surprise me when I found it. I was like, oh, um, yeah. So I don't know why. I don't know why I kept it, to be honest. So then, <laughs> mm. Dad's letter of tenants' residency before COVID letter. Mm. Are we going to keep it or are we going to shred it into pieces? I'm going to shred it. I'm going to shred it. She's going to shred it. <laughs> Yes. Okay. okay. Going in, going in. You might have to. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Keisha's face was visibly like shocked. That one was, I felt was quite aggressive. Yeah. When that went through, it mm. was like eating. We are shredding it now. <laughs> how, how do you feel? That was a bit fun. That one. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was a, a shit time. Mm. And the backwards and forwards and going round in circles is just... Yeah. It's a big fuck you to the system. Indeed. So, in regards to the stuff that's going on at the contact and kind of moving forward, and we were talking about, just before we went on to the second item, about the culture that kind of exists in venues and theatres and kind of the accessibility. You touched briefly on the kind of in-house training that you're doing. What other things are you kind of doing or what other things are you changing around accessibility, inclusivity, diversity at contact and kind of in your everyday life as well? So I wouldn't say it's a change per se because that culture was already there. I'm really glad to say that we have a good level of awareness. But what I'm trying to do is make sure that it's consistent and that it's pervasive. So, for example, I've put some structure into the staff meetings so that every month we talk about a different thing so we'll talk about environmental responsibility, we'll talk about the social model for disability, we'll talk about anti-racism, we'll talk about LGBTQ awareness. Mm-hmm. So we use this thing, which is by a woman called um, Adrienne Marie Brown. She's got a really brilliant book called Emergent Strategies. And in it, she just presents loads of little tools and tips and things for, for change and for being in an organisation. Mm. And one of them is called Elegant Steps, so it's this thing that you set yourself that feels very tangible, very doable, something that you could stride in and you can achieve. So I make everyone review an elegant step that they've done. So, for example, when we get into the week when we're talking about accessibility or social model for disability, I'll say, you know, what was your elegant step last time? What thing did you set yourself? Even if it's a word that you wanted to go and understand what that means a bit more. Um, and we'll just discuss those and people just share the things that the little things that they've done to help us just move forward. But it's knowing that it's there's never an end point and it's just continuous and it's just something to be aware of and it just sits into your fabric and it's just in your everyday thinking. So that's what I've been doing. 
and just looking into just various things that we can do that feels low level but just make sure that there's that statement mm. so that people come into the building and they know um but it's a tricky balance to strike because for example last month i went to some training with my head of operations to learn about martin's law which has come after the manchester bomb mm. and it's talking about you know your building needed to be prepared for potential terrorism mm-hmm. attacks and stuff like that mm-hmm. so it was very very light session. <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Sign me up. And it was freezing as well. It was great. Um, so when we went into that session, we had to think about the fact that it's not a good idea from that perspective to be very open about floor plans, let's mm, say, mm-hmm. or what your building looks like. Mm-hmm. But immediately for us, we're like, oh, but there's definitely a group of people that use our building, our services that need that. Yeah, They need that information to make them feel comfortable before mm. they get there. Mm. So how do we do that? Mm. So it's those conversations that we're having to have so that we're making sure that we're catering to everyone, keeping everyone safe. And again, there'll be no right or wrong. We just have to keep trying and mm. just see what works, really, mm. and just make sure we're being compliant in all ways. But none of those things feel restrictive to me. I'm constantly just like, this is good practice and mm. this is making me be more compassionate and empathetic in my decision making and inherently makes my organisation better, makes my staff feel better and secure, yeah. makes audiences feel more secure. Yes. How is that a bad thing? Yes. Every time I've come to the contact theatre to either watch a show or to engage in kind of an event that you're doing, if it's a couple of days, I've always felt looked after. I'm glad Always felt looked after. And I don't often feel like that when I go to venues, organisations. Mm. If an organisation is listening, what kind of advice or what steps can they take, introductory steps, that will start the elegant steps into positive change? Um, Two things. Immediately accept that you are running an ableist organisation. That's just given. And then go and speak to some people from those communities that you're trying to reach out to. Don't think that you have the answers. You don't have the answers. We live in an ableist world. It's nothing to feel guilty about. So just go, okay, I accept that this building, despite my efforts or my perception, there will be an inherent level of ableism Mm -hmm. built into the fabric of this building. Right, what am I doing about that? Well, let me go and speak to someone who doesn't come in here or does use it. Is it good? Is it bad? What things would make them feel more welcome? What things work? Um... And again, it doesn't have to be negative because it's very likely that you have done some things that are good. Mm. So start from that place as well. Mm. So it's like, oh, I know that we do this. I know that we do touch tours. I know that we have captioning equipment. I know that, you know, so it's like start with the stuff that you already know, Mm. do an audit and go, right, well, we're smashing it here. Yeah. Where are we not? Um, And then go and speak to those people. Mm. And what would you say to organisations that kind of use more of a tick box quota? Like we have seen X amount of, you know, this community or X amount of this community. And it doesn't quite feel as what you've done for the contact theatre, which is everyone is welcome. And there's a real sense that it's been really thought about, whereas some venues might be like, we need to reach this Mm organisation in order for us to get this funding. Mm -hmm. What, What would you say to those people in positions who are struggling with outreach I guess so yeah. maybe this is a bit of a contentious no. or no it's not but you know what I don't know if this answer is might be surprising to you but for some organizations I say don't 
do it. You're not good at this. Yes, and I agree. And just be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and just let people know. So if you don't have a lift in your building, just say that. Don't let people rock up to your building and then find out that it's not accessible. That's not cool. And if you know that you can't get the funding or whatever else, there's various reasons as to why there are so many spaces in this city that want to be more physically accessible, I'm talking about now, and they're not. But just be open and upfront about it. But don't engage in bad practice or shame. Like, that's just not helpful. And if we're a bit more explicit about our failings, then it will be easier for there to be something to do about it. But yeah, I've sat in meetings where... um, you know, it's different cultural spaces, different cultural leaders, and we'll have someone present to us maybe and say, statistically, the city's getting younger or there's, there's more cultural diversity and whatever else. And I'll see a little flurry of panic over someone's face and they're like, oh my gosh, my staff are not trained to go into these communities or to do this thing. And, and I'm like, don't do it. Mm. I'm like, you don't need to do that. There are other organisations that do that work. And if you go in and start doing it, you're just going to do it badly. You're going to make it harder for everyone else. Also, it's a disservice to your staff because they applied for that job. Not That wasn't the remit. They didn't apply thinking, oh, I'm going to have to start doing audience engagement in these spaces now. Mm-hmm. So you're going to throw them into a space where, you know, for some people it would be extremely enlightening and developmental for them. But others, it's just like, no, that's not what I want to do. What, mm-hmm. Why are you making me do this? So it's like just confront where you can have impact, what your capacity is, what your remit is, and if there's a gap, if it's something you want to get into, then that's space for a partnership mm. because there are other people who are very well-versed in this. They're experts, they've done the work, and you don't need to be stepping on their toes. So, yeah, I've just turned around to people and been like, you don't need to be welcoming young people into your building because you're just going to do it wrong. <laughs> Leave it for the experts to do. Like, yes, I, I completely agree with you. I completely agree. Like, don't do something that's going to be half-arsed yeah. just, just so you can tick that box and you can get that funding because yeah. you're just going to let a load of people down yeah. and yourselves and yourselves. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that's a great answer. Thank you for confirming. So organisations that are listening, just do your thing and do it well yeah. and learn and get better and try. <laughs> So moving on to our final item now, Keisha. So I've asked you to bring something that reminds you of an amazing memory that you'll cherish forever. So what is the last memorable item that you've brought in with you today? So during lockdown, I released an album and it was really exciting, but it was also strange because I couldn't perform it. So then I was like, oh, right, how do I do this? So I did loads of music videos to promote it and get it out there. But then there was this tiny little period in time where they opened up the rules and we were allowed to like venture out of our houses and do things. Substantial meal was yeah. it that era. Yeah. So <laughs> I remember I approached Yes Bar and I was like I want to do a concert for my album and yeah the chats that we had to have, the social distancing the ticket and the this that, it was like oh my goodness. But it was worth it and even like the artists that I approached to perform with me they were like is this happening? And I was like look as far as I'm concerned, it's happening. We have to just keep moving forward. If it doesn't happen, if it gets cancelled, it gets cancelled, isn't it? Like, let's just not. It's like, what do you mean? What do you want me to say? I don't know what to say. Just say yes and go for yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So we did go for it and it was great. But I knew that it was going to be odd 
anyway. And I'm a sensory person anyway. So I was like, right, I'm going to have to find other ways for people to enjoy themselves and engage because I was told that they can't stand up. They can't dance. They can't like, it was so funny. Um, So yeah, I made these mini zines. Um, There's a brilliant artist that I know called Rose who is a zine maker. For anyone who doesn't know, what is a zine? So it's like a kind of makeshift um, craft-based magazine. So it's very much about kind of grassroots journalism, grassroots bookmaking. It's very crafty and you essentially get paper and tape and just all kinds of materials that you want (laughs) and put a magazine together but it's very like handmade. Mm. So a mini zine is when you get an A4 piece of paper and you fold it in this really intricate way and cut it in the middle and then it creates this kind of eight-pager, this tiny little booklet. So it's really cute. And what I've brought is the original that I then photocopied onto loads of different pieces of coloured paper for my audience to have. So, yeah, I've obviously kept the original dot and I just really love getting it out. It's really cute and it just reminds me of that time, obviously. So obviously a really lovely feeling of I've got an opportunity to perform. It may or may not happen, but you kind of know in your instinct, don't you, that you're going to do it, that it's going to happen and everything will be okay. If we can just describe what it looks like for our listeners. Yeah, so it's it's got blue tape around the edge, like cable tape, um, size-wise, because it's smaller. What would you say that is? So this is a four... Yeah. Five, six, seven. Yeah, it's a seven, yeah, A7. I'm so clever. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Got something in my lemon. <laughs> so I use a lot of Sharpies. So I have my own font. So it's all written in my own font. And yeah, it just says, She be Kiki, the ephemera listening party on the front, because that was the name of the album. And then inside it has the date, so it says 11-10-2020. It's got a little rundown, so it says 6pm DJ Irfan. Then I had an amazing poet Esther Kosh um, perform. Then it says Shibi, Kiki and Shunya, so that was the main bit. And then Irfan did a celebration, Tony Allen tribute after. And again, yeah, it was so odd because we weren't allowed to like properly dance. We all just kind of sat down, just like bopping and looking at each other and getting up a little bit. And then someone will come and tell us, sit down. Yeah, can you like, sit down, please? <laughs> no, okay. don't tell you what to do. I've had four pints. Yeah. You like taking your mask off, like, I'm drinking, I'm drinking. <laughs> God, what a time that was. And what was it like, actually, when it got to the performance and you nailed it? What was that like? I loved it. Again, I felt so much warmth from everyone and everyone was really appreciative as well because it was like, you know, a concert. It's like, thank you so much for doing this. (laughs) Um, And I remember the technician came up to me afterwards and that was really sweet because I'm, I don't know why, but I feel the most vulnerable when I perform as a musician. I love singing, but I don't really see myself as a musician. I just know that I like making music and whatever. Mm. But he came up and was like, this is one of the best gigs I've ever seen. And I was just like, no, it isn't. No, it wasn't. But I think he, I suppose it was more about the vibe in the room, that it was a lot of my close friends, it was a lot of people who support my work, and just that extra layer of us all being like, oh my goodness, we're out of our houses. So it just felt very precious, I suppose. And yeah, I definitely appreciate that. So it felt, I remember I didn't feel nervous I just felt grateful Mm. all the way through and just really present 
just really enjoying every single second. Mm. Um, and you had an opportunity. Yeah. And you took that opportunity that was presented. And I think, I mean, I don't know what how that guy felt, but just by listening to it and knowing that it was a space that was so precious mm. in a time of complete chaos, even though we were allowed to go out and have substantial meals and have pints or whatever, but to access art in a time that felt really lost mm. and scary and unknown, I think is what just from hearing about it just just feels like such a moment of I'm so grateful that I can watch this mm-hmm. and that everyone in this room is here experiencing it with me. I mean, that's like most gigs anyway, but I guess when that's stripped away from you, you don't have access to that anymore. Mm-hmm. That being in that moment with you must have been just incredible. Yeah. So with this final item, would you like to shred it or would you like to keep it? Absolutely not. I will not be shredding this. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> put it through the shredder. Do you know, no, it will jam up your shredder. It's got cable tape on it. There's no pressure to shred anything. Disclaimer, <laughs> Carly breathing down my neck. No, and I think that's a good, a good yes, yes, let's keep <laughs> that. How do you feel? Were you toying with the idea of shredding it at all? Mm. No. 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 Although I never know what I'm going to, as I was saying, you know, yeah. I never know what I'm going to feel like. Mm. So there was a part of me that was like, oh gosh, the today me might just have a wild moment. Mm-hmm. But in general, I was thinking, no, no. There'd have to be really strong reasons to why I would. Yes. So, Keisha, what's next for you? Um, what have you got coming up in the rest of the year? What's your five-year plan? Oh, <laughs> do you know, literally, I'm submitting my business plan to my board tonight. That's what's next. Okay. And I have got a five-year plan in there. Great. But it gets progressively emptier and emptier along the table and the budget. Because, you know, five years ahead, it's, it's hard. Mm. So, what's next? Um, we've got a really banging summer season lined mm-hmm. up at Contact. We've just released some information about um, our CYC share, our Contact Young Company share, which is called Hand Me Down. Mm-hmm. And it's about fast fashion. And we're connecting with the Castlefield Viaduct to do that. Amazing. And so that's exciting. Um, and then we're also going to be screening some of the key matches from the Women's World Cup this year at Contact. Brilliant. So we want everyone to just come down. You can watch it in our Space Zero space or Space One for the England matches. And we're going to be obviously signposting people to the show that I mentioned before, 14%, which Mm -hmm. is about football culture and um, a female football player um, in autumn. So they're some of the key things that I'm Mm. looking forward to for the rest of the year. And then also the physical zine from the gig that you did at Yes 2020, in October. Yes. Um, which was that one of your first gigs in yeah. 2020? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Keisha, thank you so much for being on Landfill of Memories. <laughs> Thanks for having me. If you've been affected by some of the things Keisha and I have spoken about, here's where you can get some help. If you're a hoarder like me and need help and you live in the north of England, why not get in touch with Ian's group, Hoarders Helping Hoarders Peer Support Group? You can contact him on hoardershelpinghoarders.com. Also, there are national charities like Hoarding Disorders UK and you can contact them on 0330 133 2310 and their website is hoardingdisordersuk.org. If you are struggling with your mental health, you can contact the Samaritans. You can call them for free on 116 123. There's also more info in the show notes as well. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Landfill of Memories, the podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, wonderful. And it's always appreciated if you could share this podcast with your friends, family and fellow hoarders too. If you want to hear more, make sure you click the follow button now on whatever app you use to listen to your podcasts. You can also follow me on social media on at Landfill of Mems. Many blessings. Thank you.